0: If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 we will be beginning in verse 14 this morning. That's page 943 of the Pew Bibles. And if you don't have a good Bible, that is our gift to you this morning. We would encourage you to take that home to continue reading with it, reading in it, um, in the book of John even. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Our family loves Coyote Peterson. Does anybody know who Coyote Peterson is? Great. Well, now you'll be clinging to my words, I guess. He has a YouTube channel called Brave Wilderness. Coyote is a wildlife expert. He's a conservationist. He's massively popular. Okay, his YouTube channel, it's the most subscribed and watched animal show or channel. Like, he's getting more watches than Nat Geo or um, Discovery. He's kind of like Steve Irwin, but if Irwin were like a millennial YouTuber, you know? So, (laughs) he's not just gonna tell you about bullet ants. He's gonna let them crawl over his arm and bite him just to to teach you about it. He's not just gonna tell you about the tarantula hawk, which is this huge wasp that kills uh, tarantulas. He's gonna let it actually sting him. Okay, so you're learning, it's engaging, Our kids' favorite episodes feature reptiles, and especially snakes. In one episode, Coyote goes to a serpentarium in Florida. A serpentarium that's where they worship snakes. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It sounds like it. It's a refuge for snakes. And this one in particular houses thousands of snakes. Okay, thousands. I think they said something like 5,000 snakes. Including dozens of the deadliest snakes in the world. And part of what they're doing there at the Servitarium is it's also a venom laboratory. This is why Coyote's visiting it. On average, they milk 50 to 100 snakes a day. Okay, this isn't the milk you drink. This is, they're extracting their venom so that they can produce anti venom from the antibodies in uh, the snake's venom. So while Coyote is there, he helps milk an Eastern diamondback uh, rattlesnake. This gives you a sense for just how dangerous these snakes are. Again, they have tons of snakes in this room. They're just like sitting in these tubs on shelves. They're like not locked up or anything. They open it up. They pull out this eastern diamondback. They throw it on the table. It's a huge snake. I mean, it's huge. It's immediately in a defensive position. It coils up. It's, it's following coyote, you know. This thing's probably got a few foot of reach that it can get on one of its bites. So they pin it down by the head. They grab it right behind the head it takes two of them because it's so strong to basically manage the body this thing is ready to strike they bring it up to a cup i mean it's going to bite whatever's in front of it so they bring it up to a cup it latches onto it and there's just this explosion of venom i mean tons of venom you get a sense for just how dangerous it is it's not just that the venom is that is toxic it's true but also just the sheer amount that if it bit you and envenomated you you would receive if you were bit by this snake, which is the most dangerous snake in the US, if it envenomed you with this much venom, you would certainly die, okay? You've got one hope. You've got one hope. It would be the anti-venom produced from the venom of this snake, of this type of snake. You see, in a bit of irony, that which would kill you becomes your only hope for life. The object of your destruction becomes the only means of your deliverance. That which you were desperate to avoid, you now need to live. There's an analog, an obvious analog in spiritual salvation, right? That which would destroy us, our sin, it is placed on him who would destroy us. He is destroyed in our place that we might be delivered. The reason, the object of our destruction, it becomes the means of our deliverance. God the Son is destroyed in the place of his people that we might be set free. John chapter 3, if you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 14 going through 21. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Amen. You can be seated. Why should we believe in Jesus? Five times in four of these verses, Jesus mentions believing or not believing in him with severe consequences. So that's the question we're going to ask of the text this morning. Why should we believe in Jesus? We'll see two reasons, two consequences right from the text. Why should we believe in Jesus? First, those who believe have eternal life. And second, those who do not believe are already condemned. Again, two reasons right from the text. Why should we believe in Jesus? Those who believe have eternal life. Those who do not believe are already condemned. Why should we believe in Jesus first? Those who believe have eternal life. Now, to set the stage, we're jumping back into Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. We've reached a point, though, where it's basically monologue. Jesus is going to be doing the talking. Now, you'll recall that Jesus had gone to Jerusalem. He would cleansed the temple. It says that he had performed some signs and some Jews believed in his name. Now, we said this doesn't seem to be saving faith because Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. It tells us, the text tells us why he knows them all, how he knows what's in them. It seems as though Jesus looks in them and doesn't see spiritual life. Now, Nicodemus seems to be part of this group, representative of this group even. He goes to Jesus speaking in the we, and he goes to Jesus in the cover of darkness to find out who Jesus is. He says, we know that you're a teacher, that you're from God, that God must be with you, otherwise you wouldn't be able to perform these signs. See, Nicodemus knows true things about Jesus, but he doesn't quite yet have the full confession of who Christ is. So Jesus reveals he's not only a teacher, but the son of man. Like he's not just sent from God, God's not just with him, he himself is God, he's descended from heaven. He speaks to what he has seen, to what he alone has seen, the Father. Okay, Nicodemus goes to learn about Christ, he also learns something about humanity. Jesus explains to him that we are actually born of the flesh, which means we're flesh. We are turned in ourselves and away from God. Nicodemus can't actually come to know who Christ is unless he is born again by the Spirit. Right? It doesn't matter how religious we think we are, what family we're born into, our ethnicity. We are born with a condition that is fatal. You could say we are dead or we are dead men and women walking. We need new life and it comes from the Spirit of God. Okay, Jesus is going to pick up on this idea of our deadness and our need. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So Jesus is going to illustrate the human condition, that we're dead and we're dying, that we need life. And he does so by referencing what would have have been a well-known story in Israel's history from Numbers chapter 21. We read this, of course, in our responsive scripture reading. To kind of explain what's happening there, because it might sound extreme, The Lord, of course, has brought Israel up out of the house of slavery in Egypt to serve him in his good house. One thing that Israel does constantly along the way is grumble against God. Think about it. God brings them up through his outstretched right arm, through a series of signs, which culminate really in the splitting of the Red Sea. Israel moves through it. It is an act of judgment, destruction on Pharaoh's army. That's Exodus 14. Exodus 15, they sing about God's provision. Then, like five verses later, they grumble against God because they are thirsty. Chapter 16, the next chapter, the people grumble again because of their hunger. They said they would have rather have stayed in Egypt. They said, We had all the pots of meat and bread we could eat. Where they were slaves, where Pharaoh tried to wipe out an entire generation of baby boys. In their complaining against God, they are saying they would rather have Pharaoh as their king. Right? They complain time and time again in the book of Exodus. They do so again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1, they do so time and again in Numbers. You see, in their complaints, what they're telling God is they think they would be better off without him. These are the actions of those who are spiritually dead, and God is going to judge them. Their physical condition is about to match. As an act of judgment for Israel's sin, God sends the poisonous snakes into the camp. They bite the people. Those who are bitten eventually die. But then God in an act of mercy provides a means of salvation. Moses makes this bronze serpent. He lifts it up so that everyone who, all they have to do is look upon it and they recover. You see, that which would destroy them becomes the means of their salvation. The only means of their salvation The serpent then is simultaneously an image of their sin, the judgment they deserve, and God's merciful provision. All they had to do was look upon it. See, Jesus is picking up and explaining to Nicodemus and to all of us that we have been mortally wounded by sin. We are, apart from God's gracious gift of life, dead men and women walking. But God himself has provided a remedy. He has provided a means of life. Listen to verse 14 again. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now the snake was mounted to a pole. It was lifted up. That is, it was made visible. It was easy so that Israel could see. Likewise, the Son of Man must be Jesus says, lifted up, that is made visible so we could look upon him and believe and have eternal life. Now, what does it mean to be lifted up? Where does it happen? Jesus is likely adding another layer to Numbers 21. It seems to be a reference to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, which is the opening line of the fourth and final servant song of Isaiah, right? The one that captures Isaiah 53 about the suffering of the servant. This is Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Verse 13 speaks of his servants, the Lord's servant, of his exaltation, of his glorification. The next verse, and going into verse 13, it immediately turns to his brutal disfiguration, his rejection, his suffering his being crushed by the Lord, him being a guilt offering, right? And it's because of this that he justifies the many. And it's because of this that God exalts him. He lifts him up. The servant becomes the conqueror and he shares his spoils with those he has come to save. He is raised up. That is, he is exalted. Now, in the book of John... The humiliation and the exaltation of the Son are united, and it is the cross. The cross is paradoxically the place of Jesus' glorification. It is there that the Son is lifted up. It is there that we look upon Him and realize who He is, that He was sent of the Father. It is there He manifests His glory as the one and only Son of the Father, and it's because of His work there that He is subsequently glorified. You see, the cross is a place of revelation and salvation, of humiliation and exaltation. It's there we look and see who he is that we might believe in him. Jesus uses this language elsewhere of him being raised up, John eight twenty eight. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. He's lifted up, it reveals who he is. Again, John 12, 32, Jesus says, As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Then John adds, He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. The cross is revelation, reveals who the Son is. It is also salvation it is there that he, it is there that he draws all people to himself on the cross. You see, like the Israelites, we deserve death because of our sin. We have been mortally wounded. None will escape. And God, in his mercy, provides a means of salvation. The cross is where the one who would judge us, the Son, the reason for our judgment, sin, and God's salvation all meet. The Son is destroyed, treated as though he were the sinner that we might be saved. Martin Luther writes, he was to assume the form of an accursed and damned man, yes, of a serpent, and became the Savior of the world. The Son is lifted up and seen on the cross. Now, this would have been true for Nicodemus. Perhaps he actually sees Jesus crucified. It's true in history that the Son was raised up. We look upon him and, be, and we are saved. But it's also true in the preaching of the gospel now, to be clear, Jesus was raised up one time in history, he's made an atonement for sins, but it's in the preaching of the gospel that Jesus Christ is raised up, right? The crucified, resurrected, exalted Christ is lifted high for the world to see that they might believe in him and be saved. Brothers and sisters, this is why we want to preach the gospel with clarity, with simplicity, with regularity, with urgency, Imagine if Moses had buried the bronze snake. None of Israel would be able to look on it and be saved. When we withhold or distort the gospel, we bury the snake. Right? We hide the cross. Our aim, our job should be to simply hold up Jesus Christ in the preaching of the gospel that the world might look upon him and believe and be saved. You see, it's the cross that draws men to Christ. This is because the cross is the remedy for sin. It's salvation. But it's also revelation. It reveals the God of the cross. It is at the cross that God woos us to the salvation that he offers us. We see this in verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We come to one of the most beautiful and gripping verses in all of Scripture. Whether you're four or 94, is there a more beautiful truth than this? It's such a wonderful text. I told Josh this week that I was nervous to mess it up. And Josh gave a very pastoral response. He said, the only way you can mess it up is if you're unfaithful. Amen. Hear it again. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It is in the cross that God displays his love for the world. One theologian pointed out we can see the magnitude of God's love for four reasons. Okay, the subject of love, that is the one who is loving, the object of love, and their condition, who God is loving, the gift of love, which is Christ, the outcome of love, which is eternal life. To this, we would add one more, the reception of love, how it is that we receive it. Okay, we can think about how immense God's love is toward us because who is loving who, what he's giving, what it produces, and how we receive it. Who's doing the loving? It is God. The one whom John in 1 John 4 describes as love itself. God loved the world in this way. You see, the cross was caused by the love of God. It is a demonstration of God's love. Importantly, God's actions don't determine who He is. They simply demonstrate who He is. And what God shows us in the cross of Jesus Christ in an act of sheer freedom, when He sent His Son to die for sinners, is that He loves us. This is perfect love because it is perfect God. Love without limits. Love unmixed with sin. It is infinite, holy, perfect love. It is God who loves. And notice who God loves. Not just creatures, but humanity in particular but more specifically, God loved the world. This is the only time we will hear this in the entire New Testament. God loved the world. If you've read through John's Gospels and his epistles, you know he's like the apostle of love, right? He talks about love a lot. The book of John is chocked full of love language. The most of it is about the Father's unique love of the Son. We see a lot about the son's love of the father, of the son's love for his people, of God's love for the people as well. But most of what you're going to see is the father's unique love for his son. But the first mention of love in the book of John is for who? Not God loved his son or his people. It is the most pejorative and perverted sphere possible, the world. Creation turned upside down, people turned inside out, those who rejected God in the first place. The grumblers, the liars, the thieves, the murderers, the adulterers, the idolaters. God sent his son for the world. This is what's so staggering about the love. The sinful creature possesses no self-derived worth or value. Friends, God didn't save you because you're a diamond in the rough. We are unlovable, unvaluable, and yet God wills to love us. He determines that we are of value to Him. Of the greatest possible value. How valuable? Well, what did He pay to win us? His Son. We know this love is great because of the one who loves and what he gives. He gives his one and only son. Jesus, it seems, is drawing from the language of Genesis 22 where the the Lord calls Abram to sacrifice his long promised and beloved son Isaac. Okay, Genesis 22 verse two, listen to this. This is the Lord speaking to Abram. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and off from there is a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Notice the change in John three sixteen. The sacrifice is the one and only son, but the object of love is the world. God gives him up, the one he no doubt loves, to save the world. Jesus, in the book of John, uses a lot of sending language. Okay, John favors it. The Father sends the Son. But here it's God gives the Son. It demonstrates just how personal this act of love is for the Father. He gave up his Son, his only Son. Not a servant or an angel. Right? We know it had to be God the Son, and the Father willingly gives him up. John Chrysostom, a 4th century bishop in Constantinople, writes, Had he had many sons, had he had many sons and given one, this would have been a very great gift. But now he hath given his only begotten son. Not one of many, he gives his only one. One other 13th century theologian writes, He further says, only begotten to show that God does not have a love divided among many sons, but all of it for that son whom he gave to prove the immensity of his love. The object of the father's eternal, infinite, unchanging, paternal love is for the son, his only son, and he gives him up for the world. Brothers and sisters, what does that do to your heart? To think that God gave up his son for the world. It is, as we sang earlier, who am I, unworthy one, that you would give your only son. You see, the father must love the son. It is who God is. It is necessary and natural. But God chooses to love us. He demonstrates to the most remarkable of ways in sovereign love and freedom, he gives up his son for us, the unworthy ones. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you are prone to doubt that God loves you. Perhaps you look at the unfavorable circumstances in your life and you question God's goodness. I would encourage you this morning to cling to John 3.16 God loved the world. How do we know? He gave His one and only, His unique, His eternally begotten Son. Not for perfect people, but for perverse people. Not for the righteous, but for the rebels. He gave Him up for us. Paul writes similarly in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is intended to dispel all doubts that we might have about God's love for his people. Amen. Calvin writes, men are not easily convinced that God loves them. Men are not easily convinced that God loves them, and so to remove all doubt he has expressly stated that we are so very dear to God that for our sakes, he did not even spare his only begotten son. From the garden on, Satan has loved to cast doubt in our minds about God's love for his people. No doubt he uses sin towards the sin, that if there was one thing that would stop God's heart for us, you would think it would be sin. On the contrary, with absolute clarity, God demonstrates not just that he loves us, but how he loves us. He sent his son for sinners to die on their behalf. How much does God love us? How much does he value us? How much does he treasure us? Enough that he would give up his only begotten son. If you are doubting the love of God today, look to where Christ is lifted up, to where he drew you to himself, the cross. It ought to dispel all doubts of God's love. There God speaks with absolute clarity that he loves us. He loves us. The God of love, the object of love, the gift of love, and now consider the product of this love. Verse 16 again. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life eternal life. Negatively, we see we don't perish, we don't get what we deserve. Positively, we receive eternal life. We receive what we don't deserve, mercy and grace. Eternal life, it's not just the quantity of life, it is the quality of life. What Jesus is offering is not just the extension of living, but actually coming to life for the first time. This is because eternal life is, John seventeen three. it's knowing the Father and the Son whom he's sent. It is being united to life itself. Eternal life is holy communion with God. But you see, of course, we have this twofold, it's really a twofold problem that we're dying, we might say. We need life. But because we're dying because of our sin, we need a death in our place. Nicodemus and us, we don't just need the Spirit's life giving presence. Before that, we need someone to deal with our sin problem. This is what happens at the cross. This is the gospel that on the cross the Son perishes that we wouldn't. That what He accomplishes, He then applies to us by His Spirit. He gives us life eternal and spares us from eternal death. Consider God's love for the sinner. Consider the outcome of this gift and consider how we receive it. Consider the contrast between what God accomplishes and does and what we do. God sends his son from the glories of heaven to earth, from the praises of angels to the scoffings of sinful men. The Lord of the law becomes subject to it. The judge of all the earth is judged on behalf of the world's sin. Properly speaking, we don't do anything. We simply receive by faith, God gives and we grasp. We don't receive it by working, not by trying, not by weeping, not by giving or praying, not by self-hatred, not by penitence. We receive the gift of God's love in his son simply by believing. We look upon him and we believe. We thrust ourselves upon him and his cross. We believe that he has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. We've been praying for you even if we don't know your name. Our prayer for you this morning is that you would see that your sin actually warrants death. We pray also that you would see the love of God in Jesus Christ, that he has dealt with our problem on the cross that he so loved the world that he sent his son to die for us that we might live eternal. We would implore you this morning to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to receive the gift that is being offered to you right now. Why should we believe in Jesus? It is those who believe who have eternal life, and we possess it now. Brothers and sisters, we will receive the fullness of it one day, but we possess life with God now. But this good news of the gospel, it also comes with a warning. We see, especially beginning in verse 18, but we should believe in Jesus because those who believe have eternal life. We come to our second point now. We should also believe in the Son because those who don't are already condemned. Those who do not are already condemned. Looking at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, But to save the world through him. Notice the mission of the Son. God did not send the Son to destroy the world, but to deliver it. Not to condemn the world, right? But instead, that he would be condemned, that we would be saved through him. He came that we wouldn't perish, but that we would live. You see, if there is to be salvation, which again is a free act of God, if there is to be salvation, God's justice demands the cross. But his love is what supplies it. God, in love, sent his son to die for us. Some of us probably grew up thinking and still fight the thought that God is really just out to get us. It's almost as though he delights in our wrongdoing so that he can reprimand us. right? And we believe that Jesus shares in that mission that the cross is kind of like a cosmic gotcha. Many of us grew up believing that. We continue to fight that thought. Like 15 years ago, someone made these videos. You guys probably know what I'm talking about. They took these old movies of Jesus, and then they dubbed, these vo- they dubbed, <laughs> they, they dubbed like this funny voice over Jesus. Jesus, be walking. sees the disciples. He tells them, well, all right. It's time for me to tell you everything you've done wrong since I last saw you. <laughs> He says, and don't try to hide, I'll find you, because I'm Jesus. And then he calls them all out on their sin. Now, as satire, as a commentary, as on legalism and on how some people perceive Jesus, the video is funny. If you actually think this is what Jesus is like, it's incredibly sad. And many do, they believe that he came to crush the downtrodden that he came to destroy the weak, to pour salt in the wounds, right? Not to save, but to condemn. Brothers and sisters, our enemy would love us to believe that when we are most low and needy, that God is most distant from us. We see here that it's when we're at our weakest that God drew the closest. It couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. Not to destroy, but to deliver, to die that we might live eternal. You see, the Father in love sends the Son on a rescue mission because his heart is for the sinner. NBC, what is the Jesus like whom you preach? What is the heart of his message and mission? You see, the weight of John chapter 3 is captured in verses 16 and 17. Jesus didn't come to condemn, but to save. He came to be condemned that we might be saved. And yet, that Jesus came to save and not to condemn doesn't mean that there won't be condemnation. In fact, that he came to save tells us we need saving from something which is condemnation. In love, though the heart of the gospel is captured in verses 16 and 17, Jesus is going to warn Nicodemus. He's going to warn all of us who are listening. Verse 18, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Again, God did not send Jesus to condemn. That's not the heart of his mission. He came to save. And importantly, the Father didn't need to send the Son to condemn the world. He doesn't need the cross for that the world already stands condemned okay you don't send a firefighter to set a flame a burning building it's already on fire you send them to save none of us stands in a neutral position before God we are born into the flesh into death into condemnation we need God to act on our behalf to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves To bring us from darkness to light, from death to life, out of condemnation into salvation. You see, God didn't send the Son to condemn. It's not the heart of His mission, and He didn't need to. The world, in its sin, in its rejection of the Creator, in its hatred of both God and man, it already stands condemned before God. God sent the Son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Not to condemn, but to say, but this doesn't mean that there won't be condemnation. Verse 18 again, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Now to be clear, Jesus is not saying, you could mis- mis- misread this, Jesus is not saying that the only reason people will be condemned is because they reject Christ, Again, the fact that Jesus is coming demonstrates to us that we need to be saved from something. We see that clearly in verse 36. You might look down in your Bibles. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is God's holy and just anger. It's his response to our sin. It is already on humanity for its treason. But we see the one who believes moves from wrath to life. The one who rejects the son, the wrath of God remains on them. They are already condemned. You see, we're born into the flesh, which means we're born guilty. Every act of our sin, every act of sin in life confirms our condemnation. And then the outright rejection of the only means of con- Of salvation solidifies our judgment. Jesus is saying here that the person who rejects the son is already condemned. They have sealed their fate because they've rejected their only means of salvation. They have right now what awaits them forever because they've given up their only means of moving from death to life. Okay, if you were bitten by a venomous snake and we rush you to the hospital, and they happen to have, you know, antivenom there. The doctor says, "We can, good news, we can save you. We got to apply the antivenom to you. And you say, no thanks. Okay, but, but ma'am, this is the only means by which you can live. You will die without it. It's certain. It's just a matter of time. But we can give you the remedy. We can save your life. No thanks, I'm good. That person, they might be alive for a while but they are already dead because they've chosen death over life. This really what Jesus is speaking about is the double rejection of God. The world has rejected God their entire lives. John 1.10, he that is Christ was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. But then God comes to you to save you and you reject him again. John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And no doubt, God is the judge. He will render to each what is owed to them. But in a sense, this is also a type of self-condemnation because in the end, the non-Christian is getting what they want, life without God. They will be without excuse before God with no one to blame. The son, the remedy, is lifted up, and in the hardness of their heart, they reject God's means and free offer of salvation. Our statement of faith puts it this way We believe that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel, that it is the immediate duty of all to accept them by faith in repentance, and that nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel. Which rejection invokes a more severe condemnation? To reject the gospel, it is the double rejection of God that seals one's fate. Jesus is saying they are already condemned. Brothers and sisters, we should feel the urgency to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our non-believing family and friends. Motivated by love, God sent his son to save sinners from impending condemnation motivated by the same love, we should be eager to join God in His mission by sharing the good and free news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the mission of the Son is salvation. Because it requires a response from mankind, some will receive, some will reject. Because of this, the coming of God the Son becomes a type of judgment. As Jesus often speaks of himself, he's a cornerstone for some. He's a stumbling block for others. How people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals who they are right now and what they can expect for all of eternity. Jesus says they are already condemned. It becomes a type of judgment. Jesus says this outright, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. We see here why the world not only doesn't recognize him, but why they outright rejected Christ, why they reject Christ. It's because people love the darkness and they hate the light. They love the darkness because it conceals their evil deeds. This is, I think, intuitive for us. This is why I suspect most crime is done at night. People steal at night. They murder at night. People do other things like party at night. They sin in the darkness of their room. Some of the most vile things of the internet are hidden in the deepest, darkest parts of the web. People want to hide their sins from others and especially from God. They fear being exposed. Jesus, as the light of God, is the revelation of God. He is the clearest, the fullest, the final revelation of God such that to see the Son is to see the Father. But Jesus doesn't just reveal God. As the light of the world come into the world, he reveals humanity. Okay, think about Nicodemus' own encounter with Jesus. He comes to Jesus in the darkness of the night hoping to learn more about Christ, and he does. He learns he's not just a teacher, but he's the son of man. He's not, it's not just that God is with him, but he was with God in the beginning. He's not just sent from God, but he's descended from heaven one day to ascend again. He testifies to what he alone has seen, the father. But Jesus doesn't just reveal God to Nicodemus. You see, as Nicodemus walks from the darkness into the light, Nicodemus sees himself clearly for the first time. Not alive, but dead, not under the power of the Spirit, but flesh. Not righteous, but condemned. And yet, dearly loved by God. In the light, we see the gap that exists between God and us. And God's means of bridging it in the cross of Jesus Christ. Most hate the light because they love the darkness. And it conceals their evil deeds. They don't want to be exposed They don't want to repent. But Jesus says that some will actually walk toward the light. Verse 21. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Okay, notice some people, they avoid the light because they don't want to be exposed. Some people actually go to the light because they want their works to be revealed. They want the light to expose them. But notice, they want their works to be shown to be accomplished by who? By God. This person is not walking into the light to demonstrate their own works, but rather what God is doing in them. What are these works? Jesus says in John 6, 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Now, given the context of John chapter 3, that we're dead and we need new life, that new life comes from the Spirit under His sovereign freedom, that we receive eternal life as we believe in the Son who is sent, because that work is accomplished by God. I think this work here is something like regeneration and the gift of faith. That this person is being drawn to the light to be revealed in the light demonstrates that God is at work in them. You see, coming to the light doesn't demonstrate their worthiness. It doesn't demonstrate superiority over the person who hides in the light. It demonstrates that God has done for them what they cannot do for themselves. The Spirit has breathed life, the wind has blown, and we see it by its effects. Once again, we are reminded of the prologue. But to all who receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Now we know from the end of John that Nicodemus indeed will come to look upon the Son and believe. I think we're being given this picture here of him being drawn out of darkness into light. No doubt his evil works are being exposed as he's finding out he's not alive but needs life. And as painful as it is, he will delight in the overwhelming mercy of God in Christ. Rather than just seeing his sin in the light, he sees Christ and God at work in him. Newness of life, the budding of faith. The sting of sin will be extracted from Nicodemus' wounds by the Spirit. He will move from life to death. He will look upon the Son exalted on the tree and believe. Jesus is the light of the world. He reveals there on the cross not just our sin and what it deserves, but our savior. The one who would destroy us is destroyed in our place that we might be delivered. Amen. The gospel is the light that sheds this for us. One of my favorite songs is by Josh Garrels. It's called Born Again. It's a story of Garrels' conversion by way of a metaphor. He describes in the opening lines being born into the world, into the wild. There's no place for a child. He describes having to learn to use his voice to blend in with the ghouls of night. He's born into a world of monsters. He behaves like a monster. He finds himself not different from them. He's driven, he says, like a beast. He desires blood. He's had the taste of it, and he wants more and more. And yet he feels himself losing control, unraveling. Later in the song, he describes this war within him between savior and enemy. He says they're both after his soul. He thinks that they both mean to do him harm, that they're both trying to destroy him. He gets to the point where he can't run anymore from the Lord. He says, and I can't hide no more. Stumble out into the light. Raise my fists up to fight. He thinks the Lord's out to destroy him. Raise my fists up to fight. Then I catch your eyes so full of love. Lord, what have I done? I cry at your feet, wounded for me and all of the monsters of men. But here in your light, we can begin again. It's in the light that he sees his sin, that he's more of a monster than a man, but it's also in the light that he sees the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in the light that he realizes he can be born again. The son has come not to destroy but deliver. He was sent in love to save the sinner. Is there better news that we will hear? God loved the world in this way. He sent his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Here is love. Let's pray.